Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You know, if we don't feel a strong kinship with Peter at this moment, then we probably think more of ourselves um, than our wisdom level, maturity level, and past failures would advise. Do you remember my telling you that this is our last Mark and Sandwich? It began all the way back in verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That was followed by Yeshua's, or you may call him Jesus, his trial. And, and now we pick back up with Peter for the rest of chapter 14, which we will finish up this week and move on to um, chapter 15. And the trial with Pilate and the crucifixion. What happened with Yeshua is going to be contrasted with what happens here with Peter. And it truly couldn't possibly be any more different, you know, if they tried. Now, traditionally, this gospel has been seen as the one authorized by Peter himself, based on his own experiences and not a slam by anyone else. I do believe that this is the cautionary confession that Peter wanted out there. And especially with Peter's position in the early church and the miracles he worked, you know, he would have been wise to make it very clear that he was neither infallible nor particularly admirable except for the grace of God. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids, even though most of the people who read it are adults. <laughs> and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. <coughs> Excuse me. If you have kids, 
I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week <coughs> comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my ever-growing list of resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. We are finishing up chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark today, our longest uh, chapter in Mark by, by a long shot, and the most complex in a lot of ways. So I, for one, am very relieved that I haven't made any big claims or promises about my own behavior, abilities, and faith before falling flat on my face. I'm so glad I've never said in a movie, oh my gosh, why did that person run? Stay and fight or make sure he's dead. Don't just assume. Haven't you ever watched a movie before? The bad guy always gets back up or... Why are they leaving all those supplies behind? Or don't just stand there and fear do something. Or my personal favorite, I would never deny Yeshua. Only to find myself doing or almost doing a lot of those things, including almost denying Yeshua back in 2014 when an acquaintance secretly turned anti-missionary and started chatting me up with what I, in my ex inexperienced thought, were genuine questions. Let me tell you, it does not take long to really move along that path to denial once you start entertaining treason against your king. If God hadn't stepped in the last minute and asked me, what will you have to choose to forget in order to deny me? I'd possibly be one of those folks actively trying to convert people away. Although, actually, you know what? Probably I would just go back to um, video games all the time. Yeah, that would be, that's more likely. Yeah, I, I honestly think it was within, I was in seconds, okay, of being lost. So I don't go bragging anymore. And if you want my testimony on that, I will link that broadcast in the transcript. And honestly, I was a lot older than Peter when it happened. I was in my 40s, possibly over twice his age. So my ribbing and critique of Peter here really is in all humility because I love, I love him and I see myself in him. And honestly, I am grateful for my Peter moment now because now I, I know how easy it really is to do. And I wasn't even scared at the time like he was. My world hadn't been just completely been turned upside down. I haven't lived under an oppressive regime that could decide to nail me to a cross on a whim. In essence, I almost did by free choice what Peter had to be terrified into doing. I was and am rightly ashamed and put in my place. Thank you very much. Now, credit where credit is due, first of all. Peter followed behind an armed crowd sent by some really powerful people. Chief priests, who were former high priests and temple administrators and educated men like the scribes and respected men like the elders. Imagine, and, and, and that's where they're headed. They're headed to these powerful guys. And there were like Roman soldiers in the group too. 
Now imagine a young, small-town fisherman not being intimidated. And yet, he truly did love Yeshua enough to care about what happened. He had to know. Likely he was already deeply ashamed for running, and we know from John that he was the man who cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and although it was dark, they were there was a full or nearly full moon out, and somebody might just recognize him. But he's entering into enemy territory when he has wounded one of the enemy, and this was very dangerous. Let's give him the props he deserves before the text really eviscerates him. Uh, verse 66, and, as, and this is uh, chapter 14, Gospel of Mark. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So right here, Peter is approached by a really dangerous and powerful person. And if I sound a bit facetious and demeaning, it's because this was written in such a way as to provoke that sort of eye-rolling. And this is one of the reasons that people believe this account came from Peter. Only a person who has been deeply humbled could go here in the very first written account of the ministry of Yeshua. I know because this is how I write about my past failures with no excuses, nothing to make a hero out of myself when I've been ridiculous. I want people to see my failure without making it look noble. Okay? I see that all over this account. Peter was a big deal in the early church, and I have to imagine that he was used to needing to deflate his own reputation so that people would follow the master instead of the disciple. I mean, he was working miracles. He was doing these, I mean, you know, he really needed people to know he wasn't Yeshua. It's a real thing. You know, remember the words of the master, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's a real thing. And Peter believed it and lived it. Now, I'm going to point out something else that occurred to me this morning. This account, and especially when compared to the trial account before it, reads very much like a parable. A parable of the brash young boaster who cannot withstand the scrutiny of a servant girl. I personally think that this was a story that Peter had told often and had crafted it into this form in order to teach an object lesson. And so when the author of Mark was putting this together, I don't think he had to divert from how Peter related the story in the early church. Just my theory, totally unprovable, is what it is. So Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest's home, which would have been more like a complex with a common courtyard surrounded by buildings. If you think about an open atrium sort of situation, like if you've ever been in a fancy hotel where the sides go up and up and up, you know, on the inside, and you can see all the floors from the central lobby and there are skylights, well, imagine something like that with no roof and only like two floors. <laughs> um, a gathering place between these rooms that all empty out into, you know, the common area. Many early synagogues and church groups would meet in these semi-private locations where people could come inside and sit and listen because they'd hear it as they were walking by outside. All right. It's hard to keep anything secret in the ancient world, you know. Um, 
Now, Peter is specifically below in the courtyard, which means that Yeshua is being tried in an upper room, one big enough to hold elders, scribes, chief priests, and whatever guards brought him in. The job paid fairly well, and the family of Annas had become monstrously wealthy. And if you're ever interested in knowing what his home looked like, you can check out the archaeological digs at, of the Herodian Quarter in Jerusalem, and I've got links in this transcript. The Wohl, W-O-H-L, Archaeological Museum, has put out an excellent little book on it by Israeli archaeologist Naman Avigad. And you won't believe how much has been uncovered and preserved. Uh, this book is out of print, but sometimes you can find a used copy somewhere. If you get lucky, it's just a tiny little, you know, the tiny little books they sell in museums. Color pictures, though. Awesome. Um, it was uncovered because of damage during the Six-Day War, of all things. And um, you can visit the museum or find pictures online. And um, I will include some links in the transcript. Now, from the doorway, according to John, who says she was a doorkeeper, uh, Thuroros, Thuroros, I rolled my horse a little bit too much, which in Old English translates to my name, Tyler, um, a servant girl notices Peter. Uh, and the doorkeeper was a very important position in a household, to be trusted with the keys at night. She was a valued servant, but she was still just a servant and a female within a patriarchal culture. I mean, you could hardly be further from the authority and danger posed by the men interrogating witnesses and Yeshua in those upper rooms. She had authority and watch over who got in and out of the house, backed by the muscle of the guards inside. You know, other than that, she doesn't pose much of a legal threat and certainly no physical threat. Such is the ridiculous nature of this picture. She doesn't even qualify as a bouncer. 67, but she was a trusted member of the household because that was an important job. 67, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. <clears throat> What's the job of the doorkeeper? To keep watch over who is around and might try to come inside. The girl notices a stranger by the fire. The text says that she sees him. Using the generic word for noticing something. But then it uses the rarer word, emblepo. She's really looking at him hard. This is also the word used by Yeshua when he is directing people to really pay close attention to what he's saying. And more than that, this is a word that shows up three times within six verses in um, Greek Isaiah when Yahweh is commanding his people to really do some serious soul searching. Listen to me. <coughs> Excuse me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was what one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. 
her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to heaven and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So I hope you caught the messianic imagery. It's pretty thick. Um, the commandments to blind and deaf Israel to look and listen. The references to the arm of the Lord who is identified as Messiah in Greek Isaiah. The irony here is too much to miss, all right? And it will get more intense than that. This servant girl is looking carefully, and uh, we will see that she's also listening. The irony. <laughs> she says something odd. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Also? Could she have previously met Judas when he came to make the offer to sell out Yeshua? She's the doorkeeper, so it's quite likely. And we should actually read this as a second informal trial, as they couldn't condemn Yeshua upstairs, but could only interrogate in search of material to use against him. Um, You know, she doesn't really have any power either, but she is questioning him as a good doorkeeper should. And her words aren't very friendly either. In fact, they're definitely accusatory. Judeans weren't exactly impressed with people from Judea, and even Galileans, Galileans excuse me, weren't impressed by people from Nazareth. Her remark was likely dripping with contempt. And at this point, it was humiliating on more than one level because this has turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. You know, from the way things look, on the ground right now. It couldn't hardly be worse to have the group under such extreme public shame. But it will get worse. Far worse. The irony is that the servant girl is paying more attention than the disciples and the leadership and really everyone else. Uh, verse 68. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Uh, as we see in Mishnah Shavuot 8.3 concerning oaths, the phrase, I neither know nor understand what you mean, is actually a legal form of denial of a charge. Okay, so this is this is oath language. In fact, I do not know what you mean would have been sufficient but he also adds that he doesn't understand what she's talking about. And this will turn out to have been a mistake to even open his mouth more ways than one. First of all, of course, he's just flat out lying. No one just accidentally stumbles into the courtyard of the high priest in the affluent Herodian quarter of Jerusalem. He stuck out like a sore thumb because one, 
he was a stranger, and two, he obviously wasn't a wealthy man, and three, it's the early morning hours before daybreak. On the first day of Unleavened Bread, when people were either still socializing after the Seder or were in bed, he was the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. He really couldn't have been more obviously out of place. There was only one reason for him to be there, and she was the kind of person who had to notice such things. Now, the first century being the first century, his answer is very dismissive. After all, he was a free Jewish man, and this was a servant girl, possibly even a slave. A man in a patriarchal society would not be accustomed to be being challenged by a woman at all. But his dialect, his accent, almost certainly gave him away, as Judeans and Galileans did not sound the same in conversation. After denying his identity, he moves to the gateway of the courtyard, distancing himself both verbally and physically from Yeshua, who is still in the upper room. This is the second time tonight that Peter has distanced himself from his master out of fear of being in danger. As he enters the gateway, the entrance to the courtyard, the rooster crows. Now, we talked a few weeks back about the three possibilities for the identity of this rooster, be it man or bird, and the meaning is uncertain despite people saying it's definitely this or that. You'll hear that this couldn't have possibly been a rooster because of Mishnah Babakava 7.7, which reads, No cocks or hens must be raised in Jerusalem, even by laymen, because of the voluntary offerings, the meat of which may be eaten in any part of the city, and as the habit of the named fowls is to peck with their beaks in the rubbish, they may peck into a dead reptile and then peck in the meat of the offerings. In all other parts of Palestine, priests only must not raise them, as they use leave offerings for their meals, and they must be very careful about cleanliness. However, they fail to mention this ruling from the Jerusalem Talmud that clearly states the chicken had once killed an infant by pecking the soft spot on the child's head. All right, in Jerusalem. It's a... Uh, Aravina 10.1.5. So clearly the idea that there were no fowl raised in the city was not universal. And actually sound carries. When I was living out in the boonies, I would hear roosters that are a long ways off, and some of them would sound off long before dawn and even in the middle of the night. I have one across the street in my neighborhood right now, actually is more polite than other roosters I have known. Including the one I had to kill. Because... Roosters are a pain. Okay, the two theories that play on this supposed ban on poultry involve either the Roman soldiers or the temple guards sounding different calls. With the Romans, this was called the Gallicinium and would have probably been referring to the blasts around midnight and three in the morning. With the priest, it would have been a call involved with rousing the temple priest much later in the morning, but there would need to be two of them, so, you know... But there's a linguistic problem with this. Although English translations generally say the rooster, there is no definite article in the Greek. Instead, it simply reads rooster crowed, you know. Um, as we, you know, it, 
there's no definite article, as we would expect to see if it was referring to a scheduled and otherwise named event. In any event, I mean, we can theorize, but what we can't do is give any definite answer. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things. It really doesn't matter. Uh, you know, frankly, people just like to stir up controversy and be in the know and and like to throw a monkey wrench in what people think they know. And I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> um, I think this stuff is really cool. Um, but it's okay that we can't be certain about such things. Um, I mean, we don't need to be. If we have no uh, personal relationship with Yeshua, then all this stuff isn't going to mean a darn thing anyway. Because we just we believe in a story that we have to know him. Anyway, I'll be right back. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the uh, second half of Character in Context this week. We are talking about Peter's denial at the very end of Mark chapter 14. This will be our last teaching on uh, Mark 14. It's been 10 weeks, but it's such a complex chapter, so much going on. Anyway, um, Peter has been dealing with a very, very dangerous servant girl and um you know it's written like that and it it's not written that she's actually dangerous but in a very um ironic sort of way because he is down in the courtyard facing a girl's accusations and he's crumbling and yeshua is up above in an upper room with you know some pretty powerful men and he is not crumbling but uh, such is the uh, such is the comparison. So uh, verse 69, Mark 14, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. Same girl sees him again. Probably that he only retreated but didn't leave, and she begins to up the ante. Now, Peter denied his own identity, when it was just a girl confronting him. What's he going to do when the guards and other bystanders are alerted? After all, it's likely that there are people standing around who were there when the armed mob came and arrested Yeshua and when Peter cut off that ear. These are going to be people with swords and clubs and guards who can probably take care of Peter without having to resort to using weapons at all. You know, Peter, as a fisherman, is going to be very strong. But he is not a professional guard trained to actually fight. Peter said he was willing to die for Yeshua even if everyone else bailed. I'm not even 12 hours earlier, as this entire proceeding probably happened at around 2 to 3 a.m. Her words must have been chilling. Hey, this guy is one of them. Big emphasis on them, the troublemakers, the guy who follow the guys who follow that crazy wannabe rabbi who's been disrespecting our boss and making a ruckus at the temple. 
Remember how angry the whole family has been after he insulted them earlier in the week? He overturned tables, and he embarrassed the entire family of Annas. Shame to them is shame on all of us. And one of them chopped off Malchus's ear. Like, duh, guys, he's a stranger here on Passover. What the heck? Now, of course, she didn't say exactly that. But she didn't have to. At this point, every eye in the courtyard is on Peter. And all of this is going through their minds. These people owed their prestige to the household they served. And what Yeshua had done reflected on all of them. It downgraded all of them. Honor, shame, cultures are no place to insult an entire house. And especially when you tell a parable that says they're on their way out and will be replaced. But Peter, oh God love him. He still doesn't leave. He's determined to stay and see how things turn out. It's unbelievable. Peter is like this pillar of strength and weakness all rolled into one. He's a complicated guy, but then we are all more complicated than we like to admit. And so are our friends, and so are our enemies. Uh, verse 70. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. Now this word translated uh, denied is it's Arnaomai and it is the same word used back in verse 68 for his first deniable but it doesn't just have the meaning of nah it's it's the word used to actually disown someone or something this is the word used for for who for uh, whoever denies me before men I will deny him before the father so this is a serious word. First time his denial was in private to one person, but this time it is publicly to the group. And he still doesn't leave. But the bystanders have now noticed his accent because they point out he's a Galilean. And there is no reason on this planet for a foreigner to be where he is right now in the middle of the night when he doesn't know anyone there and shouldn't even be in that part of the city. And now it isn't just the girl confronting him as the first two times, but the whole group. So about this accent, let's look at the Babylonian Talmud, Erevin uh, 53b. The Gemara returns to the people of the Galilee who are not precise in their speech. What is the meaning of this? The Gemara cites examples as it was taught in a Berita, um, that there was a certain person from Galilee who would walk and say to the people, who has a mar? Who has a mar? They say to him, foolish Galilean, what do you mean? Galileans did not pronounce the guttural letters properly. So it was unclear whether he sought a donkey, chamor, to ride, or wine, chamar, to drink, wool, Amar to wear, or a lamb, Imar, to slaughter. This is an example of the lack of precision in the Galilean speech. And uh, Megillah 24b, I proposed the previous discussion, Rav Asi said, a priest from Haifa 
or Beit She'an may not lift up his hands to recite the priestly benediction as he does not know how to properly pronounce the guttural letters. This is also taught in a Beretta. One may not allow the people of Beit She'an, nor the people of Beit Haifa, nor the people of Tivonin, to pass before the Ark in order to lead the service because they pronounce Aleph as Ayan and Ayan as Aleph, and thereby distort the meaning of the prayers. Okay, see? Pronunciational snobbery is nothing new and isn't confined to internet arguments about the Tetragrammaton. And it may have also been the case that his clothing was different because different regions will make different patterns of cloth or wear their clothes differently. You know, just think about someone from anywhere other than New York would, New York City, not New York in general, would stick out like a, a sore thumb there, okay? In every way from whether or not they make eye contact to their dialect. Uh, verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is a bit more complex because some words are added to the text of the ESV and some others not because, not because it's automatically wrong, but because the wording in Greek is challenging and it could mean a number of different things. The words in question are on himself, because it's not entirely clear who he was calling down a curse on. Was it on himself, or on Yeshua, or on the crowd? William Lane thinks that the wording is unprecise because he was calling down a curse on himself if he was lying, and on them if they were lying about him. It is, you know, it's extreme, but in a situation where someone is terrified of discovery, they might as well, they might well believe that uh, being willing to curse oneself is a good way to promote the idea of innocence. Um, or when we remove the on himself from it entirely, it could reading that he was, it could read that he was cursing Yeshua as a part of swearing not to know him in order to prove his lack of affiliation. Either way, Peter has now gone just as far as someone can possibly go in verbally disowning another person. He denied it legally, and then before an entire crowd, and then cursed whoever and took an oath. Whoever he was cursing, he was cursing in the name of God. And so this is really shocking behavior. The word for curse here is anatematizo from which we get the word anathema. It is a Greek word for devoting something to destruction. We see, uh, we see it in the book, uh, in the book of Joshua, in the Septuagint a lot as, you know, the Hebrew word, uh, cherem. That's the word for things going under the ban. All right. Peter says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And notice he won't even say Yeshua's name. He refers to him impersonally as this man. That is the oath he swore. Peter fell asleep three times. Um, now he has denied knowing Yeshua three times. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Uh, three very important words here. Peter remembered. Peter broke down. Peter wept. Peter's final three actions before never being mentioned again in this gospel. Uh, Peter's witness here, his personal witness, is actually at an end. He ends it all on a very low note. No honor reversal. No redemption. No chance to redeem his shredded reputation as leader of the three and the twelve. And I will tell you that it's a very bold way to end your own story in this very first of the Gospels to be written down. And the only one penned during Peter's lifetime. This ends here with him as a failed leader, a failed follower, a failed friend. He who boasted and trusted in his flesh the most fell the farthest. But it's like that. It's like that, right? I mean... It seems that whoever God wants to use the most, he has to be the hardest on, and those who get the most revelation and giftings and access have to be torn down before they destroy others. You know, goodness knows that when it doesn't happen, it can be devastating. But of course, we know that Peter's story is long from over, but right then it must have felt like the world had come to an end. On the other hand, as Yeshua is inside the high priest's home, being accused, interrogated, and beaten, he is, um, through Peter's actions, passing the Deuteronomy 13 test for true prophets for the third time that night. You know, first Yeshua said that one of the twelve would betray him, which, of course, Judas did. Then he prophesied that all of them would be scattered and would abandon him, and that happened too. And then he revealed the details of Peter's denial. Yeshua has proven himself to be the true prophet of whom Moses spoke. While the religious elites are blind, deaf, and otherwise oblivious to it. The irony couldn't be more pronounced. So let's look at Deuteronomy 13. Verses uh, 1 through 5, this is from, you know, Moses' final speech before dying. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and Yeshua obviously had done that, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, which that happened too, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether or not you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against our Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. So, you know, Yeshua did all these signs of wonders. They came to pass 
But he never said, you know, let us go after gods, but other gods, but this is how they're treating him. Now, Israel's history makes it plain that they needed this warning from Moses and very badly. You know, having gone astray after false prophets and false gods almost continuously throughout the history of both the united and divided kingdoms. They were always following after the dazzling and comfortable and especially when they felt the slightest impatience or distrust of Yahweh. They were absolutely an adulterous nation and we aren't all that terribly different except we put our trust in money, our physical appearance, our health, our, um, I've seen a lot of people put their trust in their immune system, um, more than God. It's, it's weird. They talk, they say they're trusting God by trusting their immune system, but trusting our immune system is not the same as trusting God. Um, our knowledge, um, I struggled with that one, honestly. And whatever internet personality is thrilling us by tickling our ears with teachings that tell us that we're the remnant and they, you know, well, they aren't, you know, whoever they are. We would rather binge watch Netflix than read the Bible all the way through. We would rather talk than listen. We would rather divide over technicalities then do the hard work of loving and serving the unlovable and ungrateful. And yet, God still sent us the Messiah to save our unlovable, ungrateful behinds anyway, and at great personal cost. I mean, there's never been a greater personal cost. And uh, Moses prophesied about Yeshua as well. You know, the one who would lead a greater exodus for all nations, and not just the smallest on the planet at that time. The prophet like Moses, um, and, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, okay? Yeshua needed to be tested, but tested honestly. What he was claiming, <laughs> well, nothing more important or controversial had ever been claimed by anyone on the face of the earth. But what he faced wasn't a test, of uh, the validity of his claims. It was an agendized hearing convened for the purpose of making an execution happen. So what did Moses say about Yeshua? This is Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 15. No, no, not 15. It's Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. I think I didn't put it down. Yes. Okay, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, uh, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken, has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, 
If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now, Yeshua claimed divine authority and demanded allegiance as a condition of relationship with Yahweh. If he lacked that authority, then he was a false prophet. Yahweh could have stopped every miracle, every deliverance in healing and resurrection. Every word that Yeshua spoke could have fallen to the ground, but not one did. Yahweh didn't just vindicate Yeshua in the resurrection, but with every single miracle. Now, of course, Yeshua never led anyone away from Yahweh, but instead made it possible for more to have access to him. He satisfied all those um, prophecies of the nations coming to worship at Mount Zion in, in the prophets. Um, little addendum here in Pliny's Epistles 10.96, which contains a letter to the Emperor Trajan, Pliny the Younger, made this report about the threefold cursing and denial required of suspected Christians who wanted to escape execution. Having never been present at any trials of the Christians, I am unacquainted with the method that and limits to be observed either in examining or punishing them. Whether any difference is to be made on account of age or no distinction allowed between the youngest and the adult, whether repentance admits to a pardon or if a man has once has been once a Christian, it avails him nothing to recant. Whether the mere profession of Christianity, albeit without crimes or only the crimes associated therewith, are punishable in all these points, I am greatly doubtful. In the meantime, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible ob obstinacy deserve chastisement. There were others also possessed with the same infatuation, but being citizens of Rome, I directed them to be carried thither. These accusations spread, as is usually the case, from the mere fact of the matter being investigated and several forms of the mischief came to light. A placard was put up, without any signature, accusing a large number of persons by name. Those who denied they were or had ever been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, which I had ordered be brought for that purpose. So there's imperial cult worship right there. Together with those of the gods and who finally cursed Christ. None of which acts it is said those who are really Christians can be forced into performing these. I thought it proper to discharge. Others who were named by that informer at first confessed themselves Christians and then denied it. True, they had been of that persuasion, but they had quitted it some three years, others many years, and a few as much as 25 years ago. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the God and cursed Christ. They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit 
any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Even this practice, however, they had abandoned after the publication of my edict, by which, according to your orders, I had forbidden political associations. I judged it so much the more necessary to extract the real truth, with the assistance of torture from two female slaves, who were styled deaconesses, but I could discover nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition. I therefore adjourned the proceedings, and betook myself at once to your counsel, for the matter seemed to me well worth referring to you, especially considering the numbers endangered. Persons of all ranks and ages, and of both sexes, are and will be involved in the persecution, the prosecution. For this contagious superstition is not confined to the cities only, but has spread through the villages and rural districts. It seems possible, however, to check and cure it. Tis certain, at least, that the temples, which had been almost deserted, begin now to be frequented, and the sacred festivals, after a long intermission, are again revived, while there is a general demand for sacrificial animals, which for some time past have met with few purchasers, from hence it is easy to imagine what multitudes may be reclaimed from this error if a door be left open to repentance." Okay, so you know you've got that threefold denial that they're wanting, which is really interesting. Now, um, I, I found it one thing really interesting. You know, uh, Paul said in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, and we have two female slaves who are high up in the churches. They're deaconesses. Um, you know that that. He tortured to try and get them to recant. So anyway, that's really interesting. Um, see you next week for chapter 15.